From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. We've got a very unusual pairing of guests this week. One is a lifetime progressive faith leader, activist, and organizer who's raising kids with his husband. The other is a former longtime top leader in the religious right, notorious for effective activism against reproductive and LGBTQ rights, who went on to publicly renounce those positions and that work. One of these two men has been in the headlines this week in connection with bombshell revelations about the Supreme Court. The other has just been announced as the next president of the Interfaith Alliance. We'll sort out who's who in just a minute. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and shades of change. Pope Francis made headlines this week by appointing three Catholic women to an influential panel charged with vetting the nomination of bishops. The dicastery also comprises cardinals and bishops and has never before included women among its members. The appointees are Sister Raffaella Petrini, Secretary General of the Vatican City State, Sister Yvonne Rungoat, former Superior General of the Salesian Sisters, and Maria Lia Zervino, President of the World Union of Female Catholic Organizations. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of the SCOTUS-Dobbs ruling, new findings from the Public Religion Research Institute show that Americans are more divided than ever on the issue of abortion, even as a majority of white evangelicals say providing abortion care should be a felony. Overall support for legal access has grown from 55 to 66 percent in the past decade. The survey also shows we're increasingly committed to making voting decisions based on this one issue, whichever side we come down on. And Religion News Service reports that the hilariously named Family Research Council secretively applied for and received church status. The distinction is important in part because it allows even greater secrecy in shielding funding streams from public scrutiny. But it also makes a mockery of church status. Keep in mind the multi-million dollar homophobic theocratic think tank was tax-exempt all along. But now it enjoys the protections intended for congregations engaged in worship and ministry. And guess what? The same dishonest gambit has also been employed by Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse, the American Family Association, and get this, the immensely powerful, hard-right, Christian legal nonprofit Liberty Council. What? Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. When Rolling Stone magazine broke the news that political religious right activists bent on killing Roe v. Wade had been praying with the high court justices who did just that last month in a ruling widely derided as weak on jurisprudence and thin on explication, the right tried to dismiss the story. Making that impossible were numerous quotes from Reverend Rob Shank, former longtime leader of the anti-abortion religious right confirming not only that religious solicitation of right-leaning justices was indeed a strategy, but one that dates back many, many years. Other publications have expanded on this blockbuster story, 
and we are fortunate to have back with us in the studio today Rob Shank, who's been on this show a number of times before, but perhaps never with so many eyes on the topic at hand. And so, my friend, Reverend Rob Shank, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I think I'm thanking you. <laughs> this one's hot. It I is. I think I'm thanking you. Good. Well, well, we'll know better at the end of the interview, right? Rob, I know today is a painful day for you in a lot of ways, but you're just the right person to talk with as the very effective architect long ago of strategies that likely led directly to the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization just last month. What were your thoughts when that ruling was announced? Well, they were deeply conflicted. Um, I don't want to make you or our listeners uh, my therapists. <laughs> that would be unfair. <laughs> I'll just tell you that, uh, you know, a lot of feelings collided. I dedicated 35 years of my life to achieving that outcome. And then to see it come down after being told personally to my face by Justice, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, that it would never happen in my lifetime or in his. He was half wrong. Mm -hmm. He died, of course, uh, you know, before this decision was rendered. So uh, it did happen in my lifetime, and I didn't, I didn't expect it. I, I really thought it was still a number of years into the future. So when I saw it tumbling out, particularly uh, with the release of the leaked uh, draft opinion back in, I think that was March, uh, I was stunned. First of all, I didn't believe the leak because I knew how protected that information was. I came and went from the Supreme Court, including from chambers of the justices, for 20 years uh, I knew how they locked down uh, their clerks, for example, who were forbidden to go to parties or uh, socialize at bars while those decisions were being finalized for fear they would leak in an indiscreet moment uh, after one too many drinks. So they were really quarantined, uh, and I didn't believe it until I saw the document itself and realized, yes, that's, that's authentic. And then, of course, the chief justice confirmed that. All of that to say I was in a state of disbelief uh, as, as this thing was being revealed. But once it was, I sat with it, heard so many commentators say um, – you know, this is unprecedented and so on. And it it sent my mind reeling backwards over the years and uh, realized, you know, I had set myself up to rejoice over this moment when, in fact, I was seeing it now as a catastrophe. So let's just say it was a very complicated moment. I can me. only imagine. I can only imagine. You, you said something that I want to poke on just a little bit about Justice Scalia. Is it your impression, knowing him as you did, that he would have been uh, encouraging of this decision or would he have resisted it? I can't say for sure. 
I won't say he most certainly would have voted with the majority on this, particularly in the way that Justice Alito wrote it. I, I, I don't I, – I think he would have taken some issue with the way it was done and, as you said, how thin it was in jurisprudence. It was filled with popular religious sentiment. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm most certainly not a Supreme Court litigator. But I was around enough of them and submitted briefs enough in in cases, uh, you know, I was interested in that I know what a good argument, legal argument is. And this didn't seem to be one. It seemed to be more of a um, uh, boy, I'm, I'm reaching for words here, but it was a polemic from our side of the movement, which startled me, took my breath away. He was using phrases we had invented as bumper sticker slogans in a Supreme Court decision. It, it was breathtaking to me. Wow. I don't think Scalia would have signed on to that. Interesting. Very interesting. When you had your office on Second Street, um, I had the privilege of visiting you there as we began some of our work together. And you showed me how the window of your office faced the chambers where the the justices would gather to deliberate. You know that because you were outside and inside the court building exactly. with the justices. How did that happen? And what were the meetings like that you had with the justices? Mm. Which do you want to know about how, what happened when I was inside the court? How'd you get in? Yeah. And then what'd you do when you got there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are both um, common ways to get into the court. I mean, a lot of people don't know that the court is a tourist stop in Washington. You can tour the Supreme Court as a tourist. And uh, you can even do more than that. If you have good reason to do so, you can gain access to the conference rooms for various meetings. You have to, you know, you have to provide a lot of information and be vetted. Uh, that that's true of other federal venues, and you always need a principal al sponsor. Uh, so in the case of the court, you have to have a Supreme Court justice sponsor your event and appear personally uh, at that uh, event. We did a little bit of that. But, you know, Washington is built on relationship. So you build relationships. Um, and the, the Supreme Court justices have you know, a very tight constellation of people that they keep company with. I'll speak now only for the conservatives because I had no interactions with the liberals on the court, if I can use that term. I don't know if they prefer it, but that's for lack of a better category. You know, there's the liberals and the conservatives on the court. My relationships were exclusively with the conservatives. And I knew the company they kept and – uh and I set out to meet those people and build relationships with them and uh, to set up arrangements where uh, there were reciprocal debts owed. 
And one of the ways you pay a debt in Washington is you you give access. You open doors for people that are otherwise, in some cases, as with the court, impenetrable. So I benefited from that. It took a long time to do that, uh, at least a decade. So in the second decade, in the first decade I was at the court, um, it was mostly serendipity. Uh, In the second decade, it was mostly um, payoff of investment. And and so uh, I was able uh, to talk with the justices, to visit with them in their chambers often. Uh, I say often. Often is a, a relative thing at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court crawls. It does not run anywhere. Things are small, not large. Um, so on occasion, I would say a prayer uh, or I might have a small collection of people with me who would say a prayer with the justice. Um, that didn't happen often in chambers. I want to say that. That was a rare occasion. It did happen, but not often. It would happen more often in a conference room uh, or across the street at the Capitol or at a different venue, sometimes a restaurant, something like that. And it was always something to hear a Supreme Court justice say the simple word, amen, especially with the content of our prayers, which these days, as I'm gaining my sobriety, um, I realize we're highly, highly politicized prayers. Is it, uh, is it too difficult for you for me to ask you to give me an example of the kinds of things you might say in prayer? No, it's not. Um, it would be hard to quote verbatim because, you know, evangelicals pray spontaneously um, and you're not that much younger than I am, and I can't right. remember what I did last week. So <laughs> The synapses fail me uh, at times, although these days I'm going through quite some memory exercises I'll bet. for many reasons. But um, a, a prayer might sound something like we, – we were careful never – you, you had to observe boundaries with the justices sure. always um, and even in your language. So for example – it would be a big no-no to pray something like, Lord, we pray that same-sex marriage will never be legalized in America. That, that would be too forward. Um, it, it would be everything from boorish to a technical violation of their quasi-ethical rules. I say that because they really have no code of ethics. Well, we'll get to that, but go ahead. Yeah. So not to fast forward. I'll just say – The prayer might go something like, Lord, we thank you that Justice so-and-so is on the bench at a time when we must defend the sanctity of marriage and the family. That was code language. Sure. Uh, And it meant when we must keep same-sex marriage and the homosexual agenda, as we referred to it in those days, quote-unquote, words I regret today, uh, you know, uh, that's what it really meant when we have to keep those things illegal. Did you ever get pushback from from the justices or the people immediately around them on that kind of language? Yes. Yes, we did. Um, 
you know, justices have handlers and protectors, uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, influencers and, and, and principals, as we always refer to them, um, do in Washington. There are people uh, around them who, who rightfully guard them uh, from the crazies. And uh, I was asked more than once, is your gang, you know, are, are they safe or are they crazies? <laughs> um, I never quite knew how to answer that question, but <laughs> I tried. Um, but in any case, um, yes, we would get a little bit of pushback. Even on occasion, a justice might squirm uncomfortably, turn and leave a little circle uh, that began as a conversation circle and turned into a prayer circle. Um, so we pushed the envelope. I certainly did. You mentioned in your earlier comments about uh, investing in the relationship so that there would be a payback in terms of access or, or whatever it happened to be. You know, you and I have, have talked before about the nature of being a Supreme Court justice and, and what it means. And we know that, for example, Justice Scalia uh, died suddenly when he was on a hunting trip with uh, with friends uh, uh, who were also supporters of his. We had a lot of discussion during the Trump administration about the nature of emoluments, which are, of course, illegal for the president of the United States. But they're not illegal for the justices of the Supreme Court. Is that correct? Uh, for the most part, that's correct. I mean, they can receive speaking honoraria. They can take people up on invitations for travel, hospitality, um, entertainment, etc. Um, so, yeah, that that's correct. You can't know the uh, the mind of of any other human being. But was it your hope that by providing these emoluments, I'll call them, uh, that there would be more of an openness to hearing your message on the part of the, of the justices? Well, um, you know, I don't want to annoy you with too technical of an answer on that. Annoy me away. <laughs> I'll just say that um, what I did over the course of 20 years was to encourage mostly wealthy, influential uh, couples who were all of strong, you know, conservative political sensibilities, who were deeply religious, uh, most evangelical, though some Catholics too, uh, to come to Washington on a routine basis uh, and uh, – befriend justices or build relationships with them. And some were quite successful in doing that. Others failed miserably. <laughs> um, some, you know, were, were good at it. Some were not. I, I think all were sincere in their belief that by doing so, they would help the country. And I believed that too. I, I was, how can we say this about ourselves? I was never a charlatan. I I didn't do this cynically. I, I really believed in the mission. I thought 
this was one way to accomplish good for America and for American culture and so on. They did too. Uh, and some of them were quite generous to the justices in terms of their their um, invitations and, and their hospitality and, uh, and so forth. So uh, that did happen, yeah. So, Rob, you could not have been nearly as effective in the work that you did over those years uh, as a leader in the anti-choice movement if you had not profoundly understood that thinking of of your followers at the time and had not been an expert at teaching them how to dismiss the risks and realities of making abortion illegal. Uh, so take me into their minds, if you would. Take take this galvanizing story that we've heard this week of the 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio, the child whose family had to flee to neighboring Indiana to terminate her pregnancy. How do the activists that you used to lead, and for that matter, the lawmakers and Supreme Court justices you talk to, how do they tune out these kinds of unspeakable horrors while battling for the rights of fetuses, including those that aren't even viable? Yeah, well, first this goes to what I see as the Achilles heel uh, of evangelical and uh, arch-conservative Catholic thinking. And when I say thinking, I mean really religious belief. It, it, there might be a difference here. Um, because critical thinking in, in that world that I occupied and fostered uh, for three and a half decades um, sees that sort of critical thinking and self-critical uh, analysis as a vice, not a virtue. It's deleterious. It, it hurts. It, it, it's counter to faith. And, you know, we would often quote Bible verses that equates disbelief or the questioning of God with the worst forms of spiritual rebellion, even witchcraft. Uh, in other words, to look critically at something that you believe is a mandate from God is to actually engage in satanic activity. Wow. So there's a, there's a real fear, even for one's personal salvation uh, that attaches to all of this. So the thinking is basically this, that uh, God creates life in the womb. It is life from the very moment of conception and continues until natural expiration without any assistance. And that during that time, that God places uh, supreme value, no pun given our present context, um, supreme value on that life. So you must preserve life at all costs. And that means risking the odd, rare uh, chance that something like this 10-year-old's pregnancy, rape and pregnancy might be there. But after all, if we give her support, 
And we pray for her and we surround her with love and we provide her with resources. She can come through that and will likely in the end be stronger for it. That that would be the thinking, although more likely it would be dismissive. There's something that isn't being said here. How convenient that such a story would arise. There's an enormous amount of suspicion about the opponents of what we used to call sanctity of human life. So somebody invented this. This is, uh, you know, some kind of a prop in 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 the effort to denigrate, uh, you know, uh, pro-life advocacy. I think even to this moment, even though now as we speak, a perpetrator of this has been arrested and confessed, there will still be an enormous amount of denial in my old world. That was a setup. He was threatened or paid or some deal was made with him to confess to a crime he never – because again, this it doesn't fit with critical thought and analysis. That's too – too much. Uh, it, it, it's too far to go. So you you lived deeply in that world for a long time. Was there a period of time, or maybe the entirety of that time, when that was your mindset as well? Did you believe yes. that these were satanic uh, uh, intrusions, incursions into God's will? Yes, and and. My dear rabbi friend, it, it, it gets complicated because when I would have doubts about my own certainty on these matters, I, 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 I kind of blamed it on my dad. My dad was Jewish, a, a deeply reflective, thoughtful man. And I would say that's dad's gene uh, jingling here. Let's move on. And I suppressed that for a very long time uh, because it, it didn't fit. Um, it threatened a lot of what I was building my life and my vocation around. And, and it got even a little um, dirtier than that because nuance and um, doubt um, do not work well in fundraising or promotion. Certainty does. And let's just say um, that giving any room to doubt on any of these certainties would have had even financial consequences for me and for the organization I was building and certainly for the wider world of allies that I worked with in those years. So that organization that you built was uh, eventually called Faith and Action. Yes. Which is to be distinguished from Faith in Action, Absolutely. which is a very different group. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. If it does, it's been sort of handed over to another group of people who are very much in the mold that you used to be. Are they are they still holding on to those convictions, or do you think that there's sort of a winner-take-all politics that has taken over the leadership of of these far-right political religious organizations? 
Yeah, you know, um, I say that during those years, you know, I was not a cynic or a charlatan. But uh, there were certainly elements of cynicism and charlatanism in me, um, in others. Um, I especially saw flagrant evidence of that in the political operatives that I, I was allied with uh, in those years. So, for example, I remember a conversation I had um, with a group of political operatives. We were in the U.S. Capitol, as a matter of fact, and this guy said, you know, we, we, we got you guys, meaning you evangelicals, when, when we put abortion on the table. We got you. Where else are you going to go? You're going to go to the Democrats? Never. We've got you. And it was an utterly, it dripped with cynicism. But, but there were other evangelical leaders in the room with me, and everybody just kind of nodded our heads like, yeah, yeah, you got us on that one. So, you know, it was a mix, um, but both religious leaders, movement leaders, and certainly political leaders saw abortion, for example, and this was true of same-sex marriage and on and on it goes, they saw it as a device. It was a device, first of all, to keep the, the political loyalties of evangelicals and conservative Catholics, of all pro-lifers, whoever they were, keep them in the camp, keep them locked down. And, and abortion was certainly that. And now it's starting, now that it's kind of done, although it has to be done now on the state level, so they're going to preserve some of this uh, equity, some of this political equity. But the, the veil is starting to fray. It's, it hasn't quite dropped, but the veil is, is fraying. And, we're, and I, I'm starting to see that come to the surface where, yeah, okay, abortion got us here. Now we're here so we can move on. And suddenly the quote-unquote unborn child isn't so important anymore because we've, we've, we've achieved that. that that's, we've closed that chapter. Let's move on. There is a certain element of that. Could this decision uh, of, uh, of Dobbs have happened without the efforts that uh, were reflected in the work you'd been doing for all those years? I think that's an essential question at this point. I don't know with certainty the answer to that. Um, I can say with a certain level of certainty, I don't think we would have gotten the decision as it is worded from Justice Alito without the work we did. We coined a phrase in those years that we called the ministry of emboldenment. And what we meant by that was shoring up the sympathetic justices so that they would use stronger language, they would be bolder 
and far more assertive in their opinions, even in their dissents, that they would stop using cautious language or guarded language or even reasonable language and 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 become more <clears> – <throat> I wouldn't have said it then, but more strident. Um, we were there to bolster their courage. Um, you know, we there was talk behind the scenes when I would be together with various players in this – in this, some far more influential than I was, who would say, you know, pardon the, pardon the, the profanity or vulgarity, whichever classification it fits in from a preacher, but these guys don't have any balls. We got to give them balls so that they'll, they'll say it like it is, do what needs to be done without apology. I think that positioned them so that when Donald Trump, whom I did not support, by then I was leaving the movement, leaving the tribe. But uh, by the time he made his appointments, um, they were in good form to deliver. Wow. Are, are some of these same groups, Rob, behind uh, the efforts to create trigger laws in uh, various states – uh, so that the moment the Supreme Court announced that decision, millions of women lost their access to reproductive health care within hours? Absolutely so. Unequivocally so. Uh, yes, they were working years ago on that. Stateside was always secondary um, in terms of everything, organizing, deploying, um, allocating money and so forth. That was always secondary. But it was being done all along the way, knowing that when it when Roe does fall, we will have to shift immediately to the states. And they have and they are and they're working there now. They did it for those trigger laws that are already in place and they are working for more. So this is far from over. Far from over. And the talk now um, among my old interlocutors and, and fellows uh, is um, – at, at the very least, for the Congress to work for a national ban on abortion, period. Wow. Uh, never mind that that's contradictory to conservative sensibilities about state autonomy. Never mind, because we're not really in a conservative time anymore. Uh, I don't think what happened at the court in Dobbs or uh, what is happening among the Republicans now in the Congress or anywhere else, especially on state levels, is conservative. It's not conservative. It's radical. It's fascist. And we should start saying that. And you just did. And I did. So, you know, a lot of people reacted to the Rolling Stone article with shock or the Politico article with shock. But you actually wrote very openly about these tactics in your book, Costly Grace, four years ago, 2018. Looking back, do you wish you'd done anything differently, either to sound the alarm more or to influence your former followers differently? Yes. Um, you're my rabbi friend, not my priest friend, so I won't ask <laughs> you to be my confessor. But I will say that I stopped short 
in the book, I, I told a lot in my memoir, but I didn't tell much about the court. And there were many reasons for that. Um, there were innocent players in this equation, people who unwittingly became part of this operation. And some good souls, good people, who I was afraid, if compromised, would pay for my my actions there. I did not want that to happen. I was still a little conflicted four years ago. Who was what and who was doing what for what reason? It took a while to figure all that out. The consequences for all this stuff can be severe. I think, for example, with the Dobbs uh, draft leak, if blame is ever assigned to an underling, that person's life will be ruined professionally and perhaps personally uh, forever. Um, the stakes are very, very high. And so I've had to weigh all that in the balance. I'm still doing it as we speak. Um, I know things I would like to say. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say right now here with you, I don't know what the consequences of that would be for some people who, who shouldn't be penalized. So I'm, I'm trying to sort it out, and it's, it's pretty rough. Let's just say I haven't been sleeping. I haven't been getting a lot of sleep. You look a little tired. You and I have talked about some of these things, not in specific, but in the, in the general terms of what's appropriate to, to reveal and what not. Um, is it your expectation that there will be a time down the road, either when, uh, when you've come to terms with this or when the people you're concerned about are, are no longer unfortunately able to suffer for their actions? Is, are we going to know the whole story eventually? Yes. I want to tell that story. Good. I just Good want to, to tell it safely for others. Well, you're invited back as soon as you're ready to, to have that conversation. I feel very safe here with, <laughs> with you and the family. So now, I, I, this last question I want to ask you, Rob, is is something that we talked about um, on Memorial Day when we had uh, we had dinner together, and I credit my wife for this question um, because you were struggling at the time with with some of these same issues we've been talking about. You know, we've we've heard about the relationship between uh, Ginny Thomas and her husband Justice Thomas. We've talked a little bit about uh, Justice Scalia and his willingness to be engaged in uh, social uh, activities and, and travel and vacations with people of a particular perspective. We know that there was this leak on the Supreme Court uh, of, the, of the Dobbs decision and uh, perhaps other situations in which uh, things have happened that are coming to light that have cast a shadow on I won't go so far as to say the integrity, but the dependability of the reputation of the justices, right? And nothing has happened. Is any result of of salutary benefit going to come out of these revelations about the nature of the justices' behavior and the people who've tried to influence them? Is anything going to happen here that's going to make this better? Um, you know, I at the very least, the American people will know more about the court. And that's really important because the court has 
you might argue, uh, a more important role than perhaps in many ways the other two branches of our federal government. It has an enormous impact on our lives as we're seeing now in the wake of this Dobbs decision. Um, so, you know, there was a men's clothier, I think, who used to say an educated customer. An educated consumer is our best customer. That's it. Cy Sims. Cy Sims. That's, that's Cy Sims. So, you know, an educated electorate, an educated populace, an educated citizenry is the best of those, of all of those. So the American people should know. Um, I'd like to make a little contribution towards helping the American public to know more about the court and about the um, conduct of the justices. Um, there might be some congressional curiosity, not if the Republicans take the majority uh, in Congress in this next election. But if Democrats remain uh, in the majority, there may be some hearings, some review of the judicial branch, particularly the Supreme Court, uh, and how it conducts itself vis-a-vis -vis all, these, all these questions. Um, in the future, the court itself might undertake uh, some kind of reform of itself. That would all be good. It would be good for all of us. It would be good for the republic. It would be good for the judicial branch. Um, so I don't know, you know, if, if I'll live long enough to see all of that happen. But it seems the, the founders left a, a, a vacuum here. Um, there's a reason we've amended the Constitution. We've, we've changed things as time has gone on because they needed to be changed. And in this instance, it's no different. I think things need to change at the court. I'm not the best messenger for that, uh, but, and I realize that. But, but somebody needs to herald that, that message. Great. It's a great answer. Thank you, Rob. The Reverend Rob Shank is a former top leader of the American religious right anti-abortion movement, an effective culture warrior for many years, who has since renounced his past positions and embraced an inclusive, empathetic view of the gospel, as laid out in his powerful memoir, Costly Grace, an Evangelical's Rediscovery of Hope, Faith, and Love. Today, he serves as president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, and we'll have a chance to talk about that another time. The Reverend Rob Shank features prominently in coverage of the new revelations around religious activists enjoying ongoing secretive access to the Supreme Court justices' ruling on their issues and even their amicus briefs. Rob, thank you very much for coming in to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for the invitation, Jack. Up next, you'll meet the man who has just been named as the next president of Interfaith Alliance, defending true religious freedom for all. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, 
and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Just a few weeks ago, I had the unique pleasure of introducing you to the new interim president of Interfaith Alliance, Reverend Dr. Catherine Rhodes Henderson, unique in part because I myself am very happy to have just retired from the position of president at the Alliance after seven and a half deeply satisfying years. And now it gets even more unique because today I get to welcome to our program the person set to take that chair in September on a permanent basis. So you've got the President Emeritus of Interfaith Alliance interviewing the soon-to-be President and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, the Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. Paul, congratulations and thanks a lot for being with us today. It is such an honor to talk with you, and it is really an honor to be taking over the reins from you and to uh, be serving this organization that I have admired for almost 30 years and now to be a part of it and to be leading the group, uh, the Alliance. I'm just couldn't be more proud, honored, and excited for the work ahead. Wonderful, wonderful. Listen, a top challenge in recent years has been the outrageous way the term religious freedom has been perverted by the political religious right. So I'd love to start by asking you, what does religious freedom mean to you? Religious freedom means that every individual is endowed with the ability to make moral and choices about their life and to follow uh, whatever dictates that they follow from a religious tradition, a philosophical tradition, that that people have the ability and the right to follow their conscience. However, the question is, is that none of this is done in isolation. So where the rubber hits the road with religious freedom is, how can my religious freedom not be your religious oppression? How can I be a way of um, offering my religious freedom as a blessing or as an opportunity for us to live together, even recognizing that what I view as important is not what you view as important? Because religious freedom never happens in isolation. And so that, I think, is the most important thing, is that we are we have to really understand religious freedom as it was intended. It was to protect the people who were the most vulnerable and not necessarily be a bludgeon for those who have already have power. And so I am committed to those, all of those who would like to exercise their religious freedom, even if that means um, not following the dictates of others. And so we want, you know, I just think, unfortunately, religious freedom too often is is uh, perceived and exercised as an, a way to exercise bigotry. It's important to kind of take back what religious freedom means, because it's a very important idea and a principle of America, which is religious diversity and every religion being able to exercise freely in community. And that, I think, is the important part of it. So you use the word vulnerable in your answer, and and that's, that's an important concept, because it seems that many Americans have been vulnerable to losing this precious but simple concept because of the relentless messaging from right-wing culture warriors. How do we address that? I think actually, the you know, I, I, 
<laughs> well, I, I like to remember that the Interfaith Alliance was founded in a moment when people were throwing around terms like moral majority. And I really actually think that people who understand religious freedom the way you and I do and Interfaith Alliance understands it are in the majority. That people want people to be able to exercise religious freedom, um, but they do not want it to be used as um, as as part of the culture wars. They want it to be actually the freedom for everyone to follow the dictates of their uh, their faith and their conscience. So, so I think you know we we need to. I, I'm very interested in going back on the offensive and saying like, no, the way you're describing this is actually not. It, it does it does not provide the protection. Uh, for the people who are most vulnerable when it comes to um, having religious, you know, ha- having um, religion sometimes being used as um, a- as an excuse to exclude or to um, discriminate against. And there's, you know, this is not this is not kind of some sort of fantasy. This has actually been documented over the history of our country that people have used religion, unfortunately, in very terrible ways, whether that's in support of slavery or against interracial marriage, certainly against um, uh, uh, marriage equality when it comes to same-sex marriage. Now we see it with reproductive justice. And so we just have to, we have to remind people that people cannot understand religious freedom, uh, what, what religion says to them in very different ways, but no one gets to say um, what, what is ultimately the truth to others. What do you say to people who suggest that though they are in the majority or though they are in the plurality, their religious freedom is truncated by the claims of what you and I would agree are more vulnerable populations? I think it's just, I, you know, I, 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 um, I think it's a, just a very dangerous road to go down. We've already exercised it. Like the, the idea that I can, that, you know, I think the the most classic case um, that's that comes to mind for me is like the the wedding cake. And the question is, you know, do we really want to live in a country where people can pick and choose who they serve? If they're open for business, they're open for business. And and then, it, you know, what's the, you just you, there's no um, there's no way that you can have a society where people are picking and choosing who they can serve based on their if they're if they're open for business then they have to be open to, for business for everyone. Otherwise, we go back to moments where people can choose who to serve based on other distinctions. So I, I think I wrote a piece called The Fraying of America, um, Sincerely Held Beliefs and the Fraying of America, which really meant like I'm worried that as we you know cling to our sincerely held beliefs, which allow us not to be engaging with people um, who are different from us, that the cohesion of our country is at, at risk and the, the sense of ourselves as, you know, a people who want to be living with one another in society is at risk. And so I, I really, I, I really hope that people will find a way. You don't have to agree with me on marriage equality, but I, I, you really don't like, and, and in your own circle, it's fine. Uh, um, but you, I really feel like I should be, I should have the same rights as other citizens when I, go into a store or other kinds of things. And that's where I think we're where the rubber hits the road. And my hope is, is that um, people will understand that they can hold on to their beliefs. We all we all work with people who we disagree with all the time. And that's fine. 
Uh, but I do think like what we really, you know, what we really don't want is this kind of complete um, breaking apart and not interacting with people who are different from us. And, and that's the it's the it's the pluralism. It's the diversity that we want to celebrate and coming together across difference in ways that we can. So we we've seen a lot of ongoing revelations about how pervasive and the uh, political religious rights access has been to our nation's leaders. Uh, by by your view, should the progressive side be doing more of that, or would that just make things worse? I you know I don't think um, what what I do believe is that some of the 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 people we admire the most were motivated by um, their faith or their spirituality. We, we admire uh, King, we admire Heschel, we admire Gandhi um, and we admire them not in spite of their religion, but because of their religion and how strong it made them in their work. And, you know, I, while, while I don't want um I don't want to start wielding religion as like, you know, the, the conversation ender, but I think it's actually fine for us to, to say, you know, no one has a, um, no one has a monopoly on religion. No one has a, like the, the, the market uh, cornered. And so um, my guess is, is that there are many, many progressives out there who are working from places place of faith. We know many of their names, um, both in politics and outside of politics. We should celebrate them. We should work together, but also recognize that the strongest coalitions will be people who have are motivated, motivated by a faith tradition that is particular, but who are also able to work with people who are motivated by ones very different who may not have any faith commitment per se, but have a deep moral or secular humanist um, faith commitment. So I'm, I, I don't think anybody should, uh, to use a, a Christian phrase or a Jesus phrase, is like hide their light under a bushel. But I, that light can come in many different forms. And my hope is that it can all be a, a source of illumination for the, the whole. So should you and I be praying with Justice Sotomayor? Um. I think if, if Justice Sotomayor asked me to pray with her, I would say, "Great, let's do it." Um, you know, I, I uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask her to compartmentalize her life, um, but I also I'm not gonna give her the mantle of my religion and say, "Run with it," uh, or you know, uh, or any any political figure like that's, I don't think that's the, you know, now you are the representative that we have waited for. I mean, there was this, all this garbage with like Obama where everybody's like, Oh, the left think he's an anointed one. None of us thought he was the anointed one. We thought he was a decent character who, um, who was good at politics and maybe could put, you know, on the other hand, when Trump came along, it's like, Oh my God, God has chosen our, our, our president. And, and that's crazy to me because what do you say to that? I mean, it's very hard and, and it creates a, a sort of a, a very, very dangerous um, combination. That's uh, that leads to a theocracy that we just absolutely have to be working against right now. This idea of like kind of a Christian nationalist, um, and and just to put it out there, a white Christian nationalist understanding of what government is that precludes any other um, legitimate 
you know, that if once you go down that path, then anything that's not that is a, a threat. And it's just the most un-American idea I can imagine. You know, Interfaith Alliance actually has a history with uh, people in positions of power and and the power of prayer. When President Bill Clinton was having his uh, difficulties, shall we say, uh, one of the pastors who ministered to him was his pastor, uh, Phil Wagaman from United Methodist Church's uh, Foundry UMC. And uh, Phil was chair of the board of Interfaith Alliance at the time. I, I was always impressed that he never talked about that publicly. And uh, he was there to tend to the president's soul, not to try to uh, to change his policies or, or any such thing. So uh, you're going to be in good company going forward. You spent a lot of time building up religious literacy in the form of HuffPo religion, as well as at BeliefNet. Are we paying the price for projects like that, getting less support in recent years than you or I would have liked to see them get? First of all, thank you for uh, the, that shout out to those that work that um, I was a part of. I, I'm, I just found that what was so important about that work was the recognition that there were such a diversity of religious voices and secular humanist voices and atheist voices, all of whom had, you know, really, really wanted to be together and, and wanted to talk about what was important to them. And, and it was it was a great honor at that time to kind of lift up those voices, give them a very big platform that they hadn't otherwise had, and to recognize, wow, all these, you know, if you looked at the page, you're like, oh, I can see all of these things in one place, and how, how wonderful that that, um, that is. My hope is, is in this moment, where, which feels like a very critical kind of crossroads moment for America, that there will be a great deal of um, support from philanthropists and from uh, other civic organizations to recognize that um, religious literacy and understanding the religious diversity of our country and how that's a foundational American value um, that will and, and to offset what is what we feel is like kind of creeping. Um, you know, Christian nationalism. I think that, um, or it may not be creeping, it's galloping at this point. So I, I, I feel like we are, um, you know, I think there's an opportunity and I'm, I'm very eager to be looking for allies and support in this moment for the work of, of Interfaith Alliance going forward and t- making sure that people really remember, oh, this is great. It's great that we have a religiously diverse country. It's great that we have a, you know, a, a pluralistic country where people can believe different things and still get along. You know, what a, what a, what a wonderful thing, but it needs support. It needs like specific support. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to those conversations on about how we can get support going into the future. Well, let's talk about one segment of our country whose support is very necessary for this. You've spent uh, a lot of time working with uh, youth-facing organizations, and most recently with uh, what is now Interfaith America. It used to be Interfaith Youth Corps. How do you see young people engaging with these ideas I think, you know, I, I also worked at Princeton for, for eight years with as the associate dean of the chapel, working on interfaith uh, issues and kind of um, responsible for interfaith issues at the, at the university. And 
I have to say, like, it, it gives me hope. I, I know that, like, oh, young people, you know, like, <laughs> it's easier to go there. But actually, young people are so they really want to do the right thing. They really want to understand what what my goal is always with with um, youth is to give them the tools that they need to do the work that they want to do. And um, and not all of it is just something you're born with. And, you know, oh, you know, do do the thing. Um, I, I think that the young people really believe in a diverse country. They see it around them. They, they grow up, I think, with much more diversity um, than than uh, and than we might have um you know, when you and I were younger and, and they, so what they're looking for is like, so how does this all fit? How do, how do we build a country with this in mind, whether that's, you know, racial diversity, religious diversity, gender and sexuality diversity. And how do we, how do we build a life together that benefits everybody that lifts everybody up? And that's a, that is the the goal. That's the goal. I think, you know, for me as a, as a religious leader, that feels like the goal is like, how do we live together? How do we love one another? How do we respect one another? Young people really want to do that. That was always my sense. And and the, the opportunity here is for people involved in the work of the alliances to, to reach out and say, this is the work we're doing. These are the tools that we can offer you to do that wherever you go. And we, you know, and we can support you in whatever you're doing. And that is a winning proposition. It's what, what I've seen. So I remember when I took this job, how excited I was to be there. But I had been in the pulpit for many years and decided to start a new chapter of my life. Why, Paul, did you decide to take up this position that you'll assume officially in September? Honestly, I had a I, I have, you know, I'm still in it for another two weeks. I have a great job. I love my work. I've been able to do a lot of work at the intersection of faith and technology and, and interfaith and technology. And, and I, I have a really good job. Everything that I've done in my my work with, um, you know, the interfaith movement and my work in advocacy and my be- sincere, deep belief in religious freedom and this moment in our country where we need to protect democracy, um, all of it kind of comes together in this position. I feel like everything that I have learned about, you know, how to how to build coalitions how to how to be um how to be have conversations and messaging that works all of it feels like i've been um building towards this moment and um i'm just really excited for this opportunity i also feel like this moment requires that many of us who were comfortable uh become slightly uncomfortable and step into new areas of work that this moment requires. We are we're we're going into a, a period where we will we we need in like five years to look back and say that that was the moment we met the challenge. We have sincere challenges ahead of us, and I felt like this is a moment where I want to meet the challenge head on with an organization and a team that I believe in and uh, a message that feels necessary for this country, but also completely enmeshed with what I believe is my calling as a religious leader. So, so I am, you know, it was not done 
uh, lightly, uh, uh, but it it felt like a calling. I'll use that language, and it felt like um, uh, necessary for me to fulfill my obligations as a citizen. So, so tell me what specifically a couple of those challenges are that are facing you at Interfaith Alliance that have faced you at Interfaith America. I think we've we've touched on one of them, which is I think the this really disturbing confluence, almost um, almost meshing of um, a, a nationalism um, and a, a Christian nationalism and a, a kind of race based uh, Christian nationalism that that feels antithetical to the America that I know. And and feels like we we need to those of us who believe in a country where everyone is respected, that at its founding, uh, recognize that religious diversity was an asset and that religious diverse and that religious freedom meant those that that everyone could exercise their um, their ability to follow their conscience as they will. Um, so I feel like all of that is very threatening. I think the last um, couple of weeks of the Supreme Court were uh, really horrifying. Um, some may know, but my, my great-grandfather is Louis Brandeis, who was really kind of instrumental in promoting the idea that privacy was a value, it was an American value, and um, wrote something called the right to privacy uh, before he was in the court. And then when he was on the court, that became very important. And um, we are seeing the right to privacy, the right to for ability for people to have the ability to make choices about their life uh, uh, under threat, and we're we're seeing a lot of it um, that coming under the guise of uh, religion, um, a religion that is dictating one uh, point of view to everyone else, and I'm I, I find that deeply disturbing. Um, I I come from. Uh, a family, a proud family. My mother was um, very involved with reproductive justice, as were my sisters. And so I, I've, I've taken my cue from the women in my life um, and and really um, believe that there is a right to uh, reproductive choice, and reproductive justice. So I think that all of those are, point to a, a broader vision, which is, you know, I, I really want, I feel like there is a, a right now a bit of despondency um, among um, many, many sectors of, of America, not just the progressive, I think, you know, more conservative, there's just a lot of people who are just like wondering, like, is the American project um, completely failed? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a nationalist, but I am, I do have a certain kind of patriotism that believes uh, in the, the, the promise of America that is still becoming that we are, trying to achieve, as Baldwin said. And I feel like this moment, those of us who really believe in America and the, the promise of America that is yet to be fulfilled, but still is possible, that's what I'm, I'm, I feel like that's under threat and I'm willing to stand for it and fight for it. It's a wonderful, broad vision. I want to get to a very narrow vision okay. too. Because I have to ask you, you are the parent of two kids, a successful, ordained public figure, married to a man, and I am a Jewish faith leader, married to a woman with three proudly Jewish families that we've sired, and including two grandchildren. We sit here today as 
members of two groups that face escalating hostility and violence. Where do you think our culture is going, influenced disproportionately by an extremist theocratic cabal that seems to have infiltrated all levels of our government and society? What do you worry about most for your family, for my family, and for the families of this nation? Well, I'm very interested. I want us to have the basic rights that, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's that's really, you know, what I'm fighting for and what I'm fighting for your family and my family and, and really every single family. And so that's like, that's, that's the that's the the base uh the baseline and you know i i have to say you know we're the the question of of our um you know for 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 you know physical violence um you know the 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 kind of um the rhetoric the rhetoric that of um of a kind of christian nationalism the rhetoric of uh like who who really belongs? Um, it it doesn't fall on deaf ears. I mean, people people hear that and they and we know that they can um, respond with violence, and they do. And so, you know, synagogues uh, um, under attack. Um, Jew, you know, the the hate crimes against Jews escalating. Um, you know the the question of the, whether my marriage will still be uh, legal uh, in the eyes of the Supreme court is a very real one. Uh, and so, so, you know, the, the more than, more than ever, um, this is a time where Muslims and, um, and Jews and um, people of all different genders and sexualities we have to come together and recognize that none of us um, are none of none of our rights are just in an island over here. That it's very very connected. And um, how do we come together across religious difference, recognizing that we're not coming with the ex- the same experience, but that we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and and that we have to stand up for one another. I want to say like, you know, as just to to make sure I do say it because I admire it so much, what you did with when the Muslim ban was happening um, that you and you talked, you said, like, if they're going to start registering Muslims, then you're going to have to register me as a rabbi. I will be a Muslim and or or something to that effect. I'm not I'm not saying it exactly right, but close enough. but, But, you know, you you showed solidarity for another group. That was under attack because you you um, because you're a decent human being, but you also recognize that your rights were tied up in their rights, and um, and that none of us are going to do this alone, and um, that's the kind of um, leadership that I aspire to um, display as your successor and um, and going forward is really rec- encouraging people of all faiths and no faiths to work together and stand up for one another. Um, uh, celebrating the diversity and um, and just resisting and um, offering another another future that is better uh, to to the American population. Well, we'll have plenty more conversations, you and I, as the uh, months and years go on. Many of them on this channel on State of Belief Radio. Um, 
because you stand both by by birthright and by upbringing at the intersection of some extraordinary uh, streams of influence in American society. I look forward to exploring all of them with you. I hope one at a time. <laughs> but I want to leave on a on a positive note, given that we've talked about so many problems. What gets you up in the morning? Where is the hope that inspires you, despite what we both acknowledge are the challenges facing our society? All around us are amazing people. <laughs> you know, I mean, I you know, it, it's it, true. Is, it is it is incredible. Like the people I meet uh, all the time. Like I'll just give you, you know, you know, obviously, like I have young kids, so so you know, they they wake me up in the morning, literally. Uh, but they, you know, <laughs> but then they go to a school, a public school in New York City, where the teachers are so committed. And so give them everything. And then, you know, and then there's, you know, down the street, there's there's someone who's has a a small shop who like is is, um, you know, offers them a snack after after. And they, and I, I just feel like all around us is our 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 good people who we interact with. And and we have to we have to keep the humanity uh, in front of us because it's very hopeful. I'm also like really inspired by by artists and by um and by you know by beauty and by um you know this this wonderful world we lived in and so you know there, actually I, that is like an um i we there's a book based on the what a wonderful world and both of my children um can recite that the lyrics to that song and you know it talks about just all around us, the people of all the, you know, the colors of the rainbow in the sky are reflected on the faces of the people going by. Uh, and I really feel like it is a wonderful world. And yet it is our job to make sure that it truly is a wonderful world for all. And so that's those are the kinds of um, ruminations that I have on a daily basis. <laughs> that's great. The Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is a writer, editor, and religious activist. He is currently serving as senior advisor at Interfaith America. Paul takes up the role of president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance in September and will herald an exciting new era for the organization that has been a part of my life for most of my career. Paul, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. My pleasure. I look forward to many more conversations. Before we go, I want to take a minute to remember a friend. Carrie Donnelly was mayor of Alexandria, Virginia for many years. Before and after his tenure as mayor, he was active in civic organizations for the benefit of all the residents of Alexandria. The mayor of Alexandria is a part-time position, and Carrie worked as a banker during that time because it afforded him the opportunity to devote himself to civic matters. But after he retired from politics, he became a teacher and a coach at the local high school, very much within the nature of his personality. The thing that impressed me most about Kerry Donnelly was that during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, his very proud Irish family, his wife and five daughters, made it a point to invite a 10 or 11-year-old girl to spend a summer with them each year to bring them away from the troubles in Northern Ireland and to give them a sense that life could be better and peaceful. 
He was a man of deep faith, a member of the Blessed Sacrament Catholic community in Alexandria. And he brought those values to his life as an individual and as a public figure. Those are the kinds of people who serve our country best, those who bring the healing power of their faith to work for all of the residents of their communities. Rest in peace, Carrie Donnelly, suddenly gone at 66. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of this conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.